welcome to the miseducation of the SLP. My name is Ingrid, and I am so excited to introduce my very amazing co-host, Mrs. Shanti Vasquez. Hello, everybody. Oh, we are back. Oh, my God. <laughs> Long time no speak. Pretty much. So as you guys know, we had a first season, tons and tons and tons of information, content was put out there, and I had my original host, Ayala, co-host with me, and then things occurred in her personal space that allowed her to have some challenges um, with participating with our show. So she took a step back and Ashanti was introduced during that season. And since then, I did episodes for season two, Solo Dolo, because people had their own journeys and their own times. And obviously, I was not able to do as many episodes during that season. And so as me and Ashanti continued to chat and check on her, we decided this would be another time to relaunch and to do it with a consistent schedule so that we're not leaving you all wanting. (laughs) (laughs) We can't have that. The people want more. Yes, because honestly, you know, we really enjoyed being of service to the SLP profession in the education that we were trying to provide at high velocity because really there's so much, so much that is just lost in the sauce. And so we want to be there to support and offer everything we possibly can to make this profession one where people walk away from it pleased instead of what some people are experience, experiencing, myself included, which is bamboozled. I was bamboozled. Ooh, that's intense. Mm-hmm. That's intense. You but, know, but, you, you know, you it's, know. A, it's a, yeah, I know it's a very common feeling. It's awful. So in the spirit of that, because our original setup was like discussing the real stories of all these SLPs incognito, <laughs> um, we did not allow anybody to know of these SLPs that were sharing their experiences with us. And we had all these great stories about what it was really like in the profession and The second season, I brought some experts in to really talk about things that we could do to alleviate some of those tension spaces. But this season is really about, let me just break you off with some lessons. Let me break you off with some education. Let me get you what you need to be less miseducated. Because at this point, it's time that we start talking about this in a manner that is transparent transparent but hopeful in the sense of this is what I'm going to do this is how I can move forward if you have it in you because I'm gonna tell you right now so many SLPs don't have it in them there's a lot of fatigue out there a lot this is very very true but I feel like it will help people make a sound decision and whether or not they want to do a sidestep or a complete 180 outside of the profession? Well, I mean, I had no choice. I exited. (laughs) True. This is true. So I 
know that I'm not leaving the profession in totality, but clinical practice practicing is no longer on my radar at all. And so in that, I have to figure out what kind of job can I have when I have a master's degree and 12 years of clinical practice under me. I had to make that decision. I had to figure out some type of adjustment. Then I have to figure out what am I going to contribute to the SLP space. So that's where this comes in. Now, Ashanti was damn near poor because her job wasn't trying to give her what she deserved. So what was your situation? Well, my situation was, you know, former military spouse moving from place to place. And I left a job where I was making a comfortable amount of money with a school district and came to Florida. And I took about a 50%, actually more than 50% um, pay cut. Oh, cheap-ass Florida, just (laughs) coming for you like, oh, we're a low-cost living state, so we don't need to pay you right. And I'm like, is it low-cost? Is it, though? Is it, though? (laughs) But mixed into all that, you know, personal things happened in my life, which made it even more imperative that I get paid a fair wage. So we can dig into that more later, I guess. Yes, we can. We absolutely can. It does not have to be today. Oh, don't regard that today. No, no. Regardless <laughs> of all that, we kind of are sharing our story um, in what we needed to do to make adjustments to to have comfortable lives, right? So I did end up finding a position as a recruiter. Um, and so, any nurses out there, holla at me because I need y'all. <laughs> Just saying. Um, but regardless of any of that or SLPs in, in Ohio, because I'm also hiring for, (laughs) boy, let me stop right now. Let me not be a recruiter on this podcast. Okay. (laughs) Okay. So we really wanted to start off organically and where it starts off for all of us is in graduate school. So one of the things that I found to be an important lesson or an important element to really be mindful of is that we have an expectation that graduate school is supposed to give us all the tools that we need to be professionals out here in these streets. And unfortunately, that is 0% the case. I think it's more so an introduction to the expansive world of what speech-language pathology is. Um, I don't, I don't know that they let, they tell you you're not leaving with a full toolbox. A lot of those tools come with experience. Certainly. And, but my, my thing in terms of as a graduate student, you need to learn the information because as a professional, you already have your toolbox. You already have some foundational knowledge that's going to allow you to do the work in the context that is the current climate for speech language pathology, you cannot learn that information that in that kind of just hit the ground running in the job. You can't learn the amount of information that you really need on the job like that. So graduate school 
offers that to people. Now, there are SLPs, especially in the state of Florida, that have their bachelor's degree and they're out practicing in the pediatric space. So I do know there's a level of knowledge that comes to you from the undergraduate experience to help you in that in the space of like the academic environment with students, but that doesn't work with the adult setting at all. There's no adult geriatric SLPA rocking it out here in these streets. You've got to be all the way SLP master's level because of the simple fact that you're dealing with a lot of, um, what's the word that I'm looking for? Hmm. I guess you're dealing with a lot more of a liability if you mess it up, um, especially in the in the space of swallow and dysphagia. Mm-hmm. Um, so in the schools, I don't know that SLPs are really looking at feeding too often or too regularly or dealing with medically fragile students where they are doing dysphagia therapy with them. So I think, and in those settings, I do think they probably want a full-on SLP instead of an SLPA, but that's the only space I think that doesn't really wa- require graduate education. Well, in well, the, the education, education sector, sector, really, it, the focus of it is what is necessary for this child to be um, successful in the educational realm. So I haven't worked in a district that wanted me to focus on swallowing because it's more medically ba- medical-based. Mm-hmm. Um, and they would typically leave, you know, the feeding to the OT because Mm. that's a functional thing in order to be able to feed themselves in the lunchroom or in the classroom, wherever Mm. that student would be having lunch. Which is their scope. And it is their, it's appropriate that OTs do, we're the ones that take over once the food hits the lips and in the mouth. Correct. Um, But they've, they always do the self uh, self feeding piece. So I do register that. Um, But all that being said, with that wonderful master's degree under your belt and you go to your first job and you're trying to figure out how to do that job because it's so completely different, even sometimes from what you experience during your clinical rotations, because we all have to collect clinical hours through our graduate programs. There's no graduate program that's accredited that doesn't have the clinical rotations because you need those hours to submit them. Right. So in that regard, we all understand that we have had a taste of the real world, but under very close supervision and have some some sense of concept as to how do we do this job, right? We But we only get it for a couple semesters. What I said is so true when it comes to you being by yourself out there in these streets. It is such an uncomfortable space for so many clinicians. Yes. And I don't really understand the idea that you should be coming out of graduate school feeling like you have all that you need to be successful off day one. And I think that's because of the type of people that gravitate to speech language pathology, there's a need to be successful off day one. Mm-hmm. It's not a requirement. It's not required, no. But you know, in any other career path, there's a lot of learning that has to be done after you graduate. 
hundred percent. It's it's 100%. not. I think I think that mentality of I uh, you know I I have this degree in hand and I'm going to go conquer the world. That's it's just not realistic, and everyone just needs to stop it. Right now, what we do deserve in the space of our academic experience is a little bit more clarity as to what we're going to be walking into in the professional space. And I find that professors and educators really, really don't give any type of clarity as to what the real world looks like as a practitioner. Okay. Yeah. I agree with that. I think the attempt is there with, you know, your clinical rotation and all of the hours you have to accumulate in order to be certified. However, it turns more into, I need more hours than this. I need more hours than that. And not so much a focus on, okay, this is where I want to be. This is what I want to specialize in. So I'm going to focus all of my energy on this because of the, you know, the variety of hours that you have to collect. Again, we're shortchanging ourselves as clinicians in that space. Well, I think it's important that we get that though, for me personally, in terms of my perspective, because it is supposed to give you foundational education across the scope of practice. You just are supposed to have some, like I did not like fluency, but I had to get fluency hours. Right. There was no option for me to avoid that because it's a foundational piece. And in my career, there are circumstances where I dealt with stuttering after stroke that that fluency knowledge was something to pull from. So I was like, oh, yeah, I remember that exam, the flu hardy, because I hated it, but I remembered <laughs> it. So I could pull from that. So I got the foundational knowledge I needed to kind of address any deficit that my clients were going through or my patients were going through. So I do agree with needing all of those little sub, sub little sections of clinical hours because it's supposed to be foundational for any path or any direction that you have during your graduate program. Oh, for sure. Your CF CF doesn't have a requirement for what area you're submitting your hours for. Your CF, you can do it in any amount of, you know, you just have to mean, you just have to work essentially. You just have to work, right. But what I was saying is maybe, mm -hmm. you know, anyone that's currently in graduate school would argue, well, what about these hours that we have to accumulate? Well, because of how many different, the variety of hours you have to collect, it's not the same as just really focusing in on what it is that you are going to be doing nine to five or whatever hours you work. How are you supposed to even know that though, Ashanti? That's what I'm saying. You're not going to know. You're not going to know. I think tasting a lot of different things is going to let you be like, you know what? I like this. I don't like that. I knew I didn't like pediatrics, girl. (laughs) I did it. I did it in my career. I worked in schools, um, but private school, charter school. So I was definitely a a very different experience because my caseload was coming in to the school for five children, one-on-one, one-hour sessions. Beautiful. So sexy. Okay. (laughs) That was my jam. Okay. And I also worked in a pediatrics in in a clinic Mm -hmm. Um, back when I lived in Oregon. And I did pediatrics then, but my, the majority of my career, absolutely hard negative. No, I do not want that. 
Mm-hmm. I knew that because of graduate school. Mm-hmm. Yes. You knew you wanted those little babies. You were like, mm-hmm, this is my wheelhouse. This is my space. <laughs> and you have forsaken adults for a majority of your career, have you not? Yeah. Well, it wasn't even split until the last couple of years. It wasn't even split. I was in the skilled nursing facilities for a while. And then I got really tired of the productivity and yeah, well, we won't go into that. Why not? We will at some point. This at some point, just not right now. Yeah, this is interesting. Anyway, so in regards to people that are going into graduate school or coming out of graduate school, going into their first year, which is the CF um, nine months plus, you know, a few extra months after that. The relationship between graduate school and what you're going and encountering in the real world of employment, you just have to accept those things are not going to look anything alike. Mm-hmm. That's the first lesson of just understanding. <laughs> like we always talk about this is what should be happening. Correct. I love when people say that. This is what should be going on. This is how things should go. Well, Unfortunately, that's not changing today. Right. That's just not the reality of what is happening out on these streets. <laughs> in this moment. So mm-hmm. in this moment, I recognize a ton of things about the graduate program process that I don't like, like in 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 a high velocity, which is why our profession has a difficult time with diversity. Hmm. It, it is filtered to be that way because it says these are the people that are successful at being speech language pathologists and these are the people that aren't. And so I want all these credentials fulfilled. Mind you, people outside of those spaces that may not necessarily have the right GPA or may not have the right test score or may not have, you know, the GRE and may not have, could be phenomenal speech language pathologists, but they are not even considered because they don't meet the standard of what is accustomed to successful graduates in the speech language pathology programming. And it's conditioned that way. So diversity is impacted from the university level. Interesting. And so there is this consideration, oh, well, graduate programs should do things differently. And I understand that fully, but they're not. So we're gonna continue to have this kind of skewed data on the populace of the speech-language pathology career profession and the types of people that gravitate to it. And Mm -hmm. it's just gonna keep going that way. It is, if we don't make any fundamental shifts. And that is the population I'm talking to right now in respects to just expect that graduate school did not prepare you to feel like a rock star on day one of your profession. It's, or or year one. Or, or year one, yes, for that matter. Mm-hmm. Or year three. Mm-hmm. It is by probably maybe year five that you're really going to feel like, yeah, I got this. This is something I can do in my sleep. But even in that year five, you're going to encounter a patient. You're going to be like, I have no idea what to do for you, sir. <laughs> Because that's the growing nature of humanity. Right. And the growing nature of our discipline. 
honestly, that's why it went from very specific, you know, speech, language, cog, and um, what else? Swallow, excuse me. Yeah. And now it is ballooned into all kinds of different niches. Yes. That resonance. Um, I mean, doing voice with the transgender community mm -hmm. has become something. Yeah. Yeah. It's become something, it's new for our science, but it's something we've taken on. We've taken on, um, you know, things like music therapy to help with certain kinds of communication issues. Mm -hmm. We've taken on definitely delving into the neurodivergent. Mm -hmm. Which is an ever-changing thing in in and of itself. Mm -hmm. And normalizing. Yes, the, the... the strategies and and mindset that you and I used in the private clinic we work together at are very different now. Mm-hmm. Very Absolutely. Different. Absolutely. Because it's an organic growing thing. So even when you are feeling solid as a professional that you know what you're doing, you're still going to have experiences where you don't know what you're doing. And that is okay. You lean into the foundation. Mm-hmm. Always lean. Go back to the basics. The foundation is what matters. And ultimately, the one thing that was always clear to me is that patient-centered is always a discussion, but it isn't necessarily how clinical practice goes down because mm. you can't do patient-centered care in certain environments that won't allow you the time to really be good at it. What you're going to do is a worksheet, a lesson plan, a quick little this, that, a group, or whatever you can do to get through the day. Yeah. So if you come across spaces in the very beginning, in the very beginning of your career, and you're like, dang, I am out of my depth. Go to the to the source. Go to what you know. Go back to the beginning because it's not bad. It's not bad to research at night, to, you know, study again and again and again while you're out there being a professional. That's okay. And honestly, now there are so many resources out there, especially with, you know, with, with, Instagram and TikTok and Facebook, there's so many different groups and just it, there's so much information that wasn't there in the last, what, 10, 14 years. How many years have we been doing this? (laughs) Girl, a lot. 25 years between the two of us. Oh goodness. Too many. (laughs) They might start trying to guess my age. I said between the two of us. (laughs) Okay. You could have five years. I could have 20. <laughs> okay, okay. Or you could have 10 and I have 15. They don't uh, know. They don't they know. They don't know until they look up your license and they're like, mm, okay. Why'd you give them that idea? <laughs> I'm just saying. Listen, we're supposed to be saying we're season, seasoned. <laughs> seasoned. So, like, let, let's sprinkle some little salt on there. Like, let's okay. sprinkle it for the audience to be like, yes, t- between the two of us. We got 25 yes. years of ex- clinical experience under our belt. And 
You know what frustrates me about that? I'm not even going to lie. That don't do one iota to my paycheck at all. And I actually become less desirable the more seasoned I am. I was just going to say that in in the the last, I want to say two to three years, I have started to feel like the more experience I have on my resume, the less they're going to consider me because they don't want to pay me as much. Mm -hmm. Which that's a whole nother episode. (laughs) We had one. There was a 26 year SLP that we interviewed Mm -hmm. that was on, I want to say it was probably one of our highest episodes um, in terms of listenership mm-hmm. because you want a trajectory in a career where your expertise as you grow in it is valued, right? Right. You want that. But so, so much feedback and so much clarity has been given to me across the nation, across different jobs, across different environments that the more the more years I was putting on my resume of being a skilled clinician, the less they were interested in me. Mm. And it all boils down to the mighty dollar. And moldability. Mm-hmm. Are you going to assimilate to how we want things done? Mm. Because like I said, it is not about patient-centered care. Because patient-centered care would be like, I want the person with the most experience up in here. Yeah, That's not what this is about. I want somebody I can make sure fits into how we want our speech pathologists to work. We want them to work like this, with this kind of experience or this kind of, like we want to mold you into us, which is an incredibly popular thing. And I don't, I'm not moldable. I was never moldable. I got too much attitude to be moldable. <laughs> but I'm a, mi- I'm a minority in this profession. Mm-hmm. There are excellent clinicians in this profession of all kinds of backgrounds that are also not moldable off day one. But a majority of the people that I've come across are moldable. They fit into the environment they picked. Mm-hmm. They've adjusted themselves to assimilate well because they don't want to be uh, sore thumb. They don't want to stick out. They don't, they don't want to do that. Well, that makes you a target. And it seems like in, in the experience I've had, they hire you because they need a warm body that has the credentials, but they want you to do it their way. Or they just want you to sign off on the paperwork, just keep it in compliance. Um, and that's an overgeneralization. Not every place I've worked operates operated like that. But there was a lot of that going on. And in my brain, I'm like, did you want somebody with a degree in this? Or did you just want, like, it's like, it's like it's the checkbox of this is the stuff that we're just used to. Like, for example, C's, right? Right. So unnecessary, so unnecessary, but it's such a checkbox on so many jobs. And you know what? If you ask your boss, 
What is the value of having seeds? None of them can answer that question. Oh, I could go on and on because I've been from Florida to California and back. And it seems like every time I try to show a new employer, unless, you know, I, I stand corrected, a few of the counties have asked for the seeds because they that they have an SLP that's doing the hiring. But if it is not an SLP that was doing the hiring or interviewing, when I mentioned that I have my ASHA C's, they're like, what's that? But it's on the job post. It's required. It's it's required on the job post. Absolutely. Absolutely. But I, this happened to me in California. I was applying for the school district that we were living, that we were living in that County. And I have my C's. It's on the job post. So when I email everything to HR, the lady at HR is like, uh, I don't have your um, your college uh, what is it, transcripts. Ma'am, you don't need my transcripts because ASHA has already verified all of that. That is the point of maintaining your C's. You've done, you've done the work. You've passed all your classes, your courses, all that. Uh, unless we get transcripts, we're not processing your application. <laughs> wow what was the what's the point what is the point which uh you know really quickly fast forward you know two years into that assignment which I ended up working for that same um school district as a contractor fast forward two years and they pulled me into the office and they said hey we just want to let you know we're no longer using contractors we're fully staffed with direct hires now because I was a contractor I could not be a direct hire because of the contracting, you know, the nature of contracting jobs. And I let her know, um, you know, I did apply for this two years ago, but HR would not process my application. Well, why not? Well, because they wanted transcripts. Why did they ask for transcripts? You have your C's. I tried explaining that. So you might run into that and... Well, it's one of those situations where I'm like, employers don't know the value, but it's one of the checkboxes. You having a mass, you know, these checkboxes, but it doesn't ultimately down to the basics of it all. It's like in the space of me thinking that I'm a professional and all these things should matter and make me more autonomous in my role where I can do more things independently. That's not what I walk into. I walk into you telling me how many minutes I can see my patient for. I walk into you telling me my frequencies. I walk into you picking how big my caseload is. I walk, that's what I walk. What, what you had me needing to have all of these things on this checkbox just to make me a worker bee. Yeah. Excuse me. And it's not I did about not the go, patient. I, oh my God. I did not go a hundred thousand dollars in debt so mm. that you can tell me exactly how I should treat my patients. Mm-hmm. Sir, ma'am, no. But that's the reality. And so they want somebody that isn't gonna be like me that understands the value of my master's <laughs> education and understands the value of being certified for a majority of my career and understands just what my role is to guide patient care. I'm not letting some insurance company tell me how many times I can see my patient. Right. What kind of mess am I in right now? And so... I have decided with true clarity that 
as the years go by for speech language pathologists, unless you are in a niche, beautiful, cozy job, stick to it, but mm. get, have an exit plan ready mm -hmm. within you by year 10, you better start looking at something else for sure. Now on that note, we're going to go ahead and wrap up this episode because we know that all y'all got to get through your days. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> <laughs> but um, we'll be back for episode two in the next two weeks. So we will see you then. If you want to email us, you want to reach out, obviously email has not changed. MisEducatedSLP at gmail.com is still available. We've launched our IG so you can always find Miseducated SLP on IG. And we also have a Facebook page. So look us up, chat with us, all that jazz. Yes. And in the meantime, keep calm. You got this. <laughs> she says that with her soothing voice. Y'all heard that? <laughs> she came out with the. It's just, I'm excited about this. This uh, microphone. microphone. Oh, yeah. God. We're I back to that. Yeah straight pro <laughs> I'm not I'm done I'm done <laughs> all right everyone bye have a fantastic week <laughs>